0: You are our Heavenly Father. We thank you that even before the foundation of the world, you chose us, predestined us. You set your love upon us. You have now, through the sacrifice of your Son, and showing us our need. And as we have received him, we have placed us into your family. We thank you for that. Father, we pray for any that are here that have never put their faith and trust in you in the sacrifice of your Son, that today might be their day of salvation. That They might repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and, and embrace Christ and all that he has done for them by dying in their place, and that they might receive him. Father, again, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for the fact that you are growing us. And we ask now as we look into your word in a number of passages that especially we as fathers might be able to grab a hold of all that you expect from us. And yet, Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed or discouraged but to embrace the power of your spirit to accomplish in our lives what you want. Father, if there are areas in our life we need to confess, we would pray that we would do that. If we need to reach out to our children to do that, we pray that we would do that. And yet, Father, remind us that as you call us to this walk, you empower us. And no matter where we find ourselves, we can move forward. Just guide us now, help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to change for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in three key passages today. We're just kind of hitting pieces. Again, if you're a father, happy Father's Day. Fathering is not easy, but it's a great blessing. Would you agree? And there's always been challenges. Sometimes I think we think that it's only now that it's a challenge. It's always been challenging. Again, if you go back to the first century, families were presided over by the fathers. In fact, fathers in that day and age could do literally anything they wanted. Rome had a law called patria, patria postestas, I guess. It means the father's power. The father's power. Men who were Roman citizens were given absolute property rights over their families. By law, the children and the wife were regarded as the father's personal property, and he could do with them what he wished. A displeased father could disown his children could sell them into slavery, or even kill them if he wished. That was the power of the father. When a child was born, the baby was placed between the father's feet. If the father picked up the baby, the child stayed in the home. If he turned and walked away, the child was either left to die or sold at an auction. Seneca, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, described Roman's policy (coughs) with regard with regard to the same as an unwanted animal, he said this quote, "We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow. children born weak or deformed, we drown." End quote." By the way, it's not much better today in light of the fact that we kill millions of babies through abortion. They have become, I guess, a disposable commodity. That's sad, isn't it? I I get so frustrated when people talk about Christian America or we are on God's side. I'm like, do you understand abortion? But the, the point of all this is this. The Bible calls Christian fathers to a different standard. The Bible calls Christian fathers to a different standard. Called to a different standard back in the first century called to a different standard in this century. And we want to look at the responsibility of the Father. And again, if you haven't found Ephesians 6, we want to get to Ephesians 6, 4. A very familiar passage. He First of all, it talked about children, verses 1, 2, and 3. Children are to obey, children are to honor. And then he says in verse 4, And you fathers, by the way, the word fathers, pater, is used over 400 times. Over 400. Most of the time, he's using, it's used of a male. Now, once in a while, it's used of parents, plural. But I believe here, it's more specific to fathers-specific. Literally, the male, the the magi, the father. And he gives two different commands. Uh, you fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, or the training and admonition of the Lord. The nurture and admonition. The teaching of the Lord, your version may have, but basically two things you have to do. Don't do what? Do this. Don't provoke, but bring them up. By the way, as I was saying in the ABF class, uh, it's amazing when it comes to parenting marriage, very little is really said about what a parent should be, what a a spouse should be. Because again, so much of it is, is just life. You get yourself a godly father Excuse me. You get yourself a godly man, and I dare say he's going to be a godly father, right? So there's not a lot of time spent, you know, because even when you when you use the word "bring them up" in the training and mission of the Lord, that's going back to chapters one through one through five up to this point. But again, let's look at these two commands, and again, both of them are commands. Both of them are in the present imperative. Both of them are: this is what you must do if you are a father. And the first one is a negative. That means. Avoid provoking, don't provoke, don't provoke your child to anger, don't exasperate your child, don't rouse them to anger, don't rouse them to be enraged. By the way, I think Wayne Mack has a good point, this does not mean that you never oppose the child or deny the child something. Or that you cross the child. In other words, you know, well, you cannot have that. Oh, I get so angry. The Bible says you shouldn't provoke me. At that point in the game, you bring out the whacker. By the way, I was, uh, there's books out written on just like 25 things, ways that you can provoke a child. You know, let me just give you a few of them. By the way, as I, as I read these off, I start feeling like I'm in a minefield. Like I'm going to step on one of these. See, you can provoke a child to rage. This one isn't even got to do with them. It's got to do with your marriage. If there's disharmony in the home, that provokes a child to anger. Watching a mother and father fight doesn't bring peace. Peace. If you overprotect the child, you know, fence him in, i.e., you don't trust him, that provokes him to anger. If you overdiscipline him, that could provoke him to anger. Let's take the other extreme. If you overindulge him, you're a permissive parent, you know, child-centered, that can provoke him. Studies prove that children given too much freedom begin to feel insecure and unloved, in other words, children need boundaries. Do you understand that? We need boundaries to operate within. Children who are shown favoritism, you know, you have four kids and that one right there is the golden child. That's going to that's going to create anger by the other children. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, Rebecca preferred Jacob Over Esau, and and there was a lot of problems. Or a doting parent, never allowing the child to make decisions. How about this one? Unrealistic goals, or unclear expectations. In other words, a dad who is constantly pushing for achievement. By the way, are we supposed to push our children? But you know what? If you're going to push them, push them towards character, not just not achievement achievement is is many times fear of man driven it's character. Uh, write this verse down, you won't have time to turn, but you know we're we're called to exhort, we're called to charge uh you know in other words, command, but we're also called as parents as fathers to comfort, and in first Thessalonians chapter two, verse eleven. Paul speaking to the Thessalonica church says, like a father, we, notice the three verbs, we exhorted you. In other words, we came along, that's Paraclao. Uh, we came along, called alongside of you. We came alongside of you. The apostle is saying, we as an apostles uh, came alongside of you as a church. But that's what like fathers should do. A father should come alongside his children. We come alongside. But then he also says, we encouraged you. That's console. I'm afraid sometimes as a father, we're good at one and not the other. And we charged you. That's command. So we come alongside you to comfort. We come alongside to command. We come alongside to guide. But there's that balance. But those who are... Unrealistic goals just are always barking orders. Uh, That can anger a child. And number five or six, whatever one we're on. This is a big one that causes anger discouragement. Let's put them all together. Criticism, fault finding, sarcasm, verbal abuse, all those. Do you think that causes anger in a child? Some of you probably have endured that. Maybe some of you endured it as a child. Now you're older. Now you do it to your own kids and you kick yourself every time you say it. You know, we need to train ourselves to praise our kids, to look to approve them, to look to encourage them. You know, it's interesting, Colossians 3, now you don't have to... But as, as Paul ends the, uh, the letter to, to the Colossians, he just says, One thing to fathers... And it's a negative. He doesn't even add a positive. He says this in verse uh, Colossians 3.21. <coughs> Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they beco- become discouraged. And the word discouraged there is disheartened. Uh, lost their spirit. Or if you want a visual, the pin goes into the balloon and... <sighs> and yeah, you beat them down and you got them to do what is right, but it was all said and done. They were so fearful they didn't want to make the next move. Heckin'. So, Paul says to the Colossian fathers, you know, don't, don't provoke. By the way, it's a different word, provoke, but it means, the idea, don't, don't seek to break their spirit. One guy said this, quote, a, a child learns what he lives. If he lives with criticism, he does not learn responsibility. He learns to condemn himself, to find fault with others. He learns to doubt his own judgment, to disparage his own ability, to distrust others. And above all, he learns to live with a continual expectation of impending doom. You become paralyzed. And then the final one is neglect. That angers a child because that will provoke a child to anger. Neglect. Neglect. Showing indifference to. Maybe at home but not involved. Sometimes I get like that. My wife, she has been the biggest blessing to me. John, get focused, or however she says it in her way. You have other things than just your work. Like Proverbs says a child left to himself, it's when a parent doesn't really listen. Really is not keyed in. Do you see what I mean by a minefield? By the way, I say a minefield because after after doing all, I mean after saying all those different ways I can cause anger in my child, I almost feel like I can't. I feel discouraged already, and I'm only ten minutes into this message. I want to end by encouragement. You know, I've been noticing because I I'm somewhat of a perfectionist. And what's been hitting me lately is, you know, more is caught than taught. People watch who you are, not what you say. I probably have a bigger impact on my kids on who I am, not what I'm trying to teach them. Now, I'm not saying not to teach, and we're going right into this right now. But I want you to, I'm trying to set this up for you. Don't think of all this as just head knowledge, something you say. This is is, is life. You're, if you're a parent, you're trying to pass, if you're a father, if you're trying to pass life on to your kids. And so that's, by the way, an encouragement. Uh, the positive side of this command is to bring them up. It means to nourish up to maturity. In other words, you're not raising children, you're raising adults. You've got to keep that in mind. We're not raising children, I'm raising adults. Oh, sure, they might only be right now. The youngest one is 14. But I'm raising an adult. And that's what I've got to look towards. I'm nourishing to, a, to a maturity. And I'm trying to help this young one, all seven or six now, to embrace God and his ways. By the way, I do have a little bit of input into my grandchildren, right? <clears throat> Not as much as my children. Or maybe more, I don't know. But um, again, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to raise them to maturity, help at least in the process. Interesting thing about this word, bring them up. It's also found in chapter 5, verse 29. Why don't you just turn back there, just for a moment, because whenever a word is repeated, especially in close context, it means something. Look at verse 29, it says, For no one ever hated his own flesh. It's talking about the individual, and it's in the context of the male, the man. No one ever hated it because it's. In, look at verse twenty-eight. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse twenty-nine. That's where we want to be. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. That's the word. Nourishes and cherishes it. Now wait, what do you mean? Well, we all care greatly about ourselves, and in this passage, what is he saying? Well, just like you love yourself, now we are ought to love our wives. By the way, nowhere in Scripture does it say you need to love yourself more. We already love ourselves. We got that one down. The point in marriage is, as you love yourself, love your wife. Nourish. Bring her up. Cherish. Same word. Chapter 6, verse 4. Bring them up in the... Okay, bring them up. That's the word nourish, bring them up, different use, but I mean that's what it is, bring them up, in the nurture, the training, and again the word is, um, so just like, a, I mean this is the point, just like we care for ourselves, we should care for our wives, and we should care for our children, we should seek to give them what they need, whether it's the wife or the child. And then he names two different things. And the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So the first thing is we need to nurture them. We need to, or your version might say training. A New American says discipline. It's the word paedia. Uh, Paedia is a good word. It's, It's a comprehensive word. It means whatever that child needs to grow up to serve Jesus, that's what we need to be focused on. Paedia. The overall training and education of a child. It has to do with teaching. It has to do with training. It has to do with systematic training of the child. It's used in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 where it says, All scripture is given. And then at the very end, verse 17, it says, For instruction and righteousness. That word instruction is paedia. This is the point. I've got to know my kids. Parents, fathers, you need to know your kids. They're different. What do they need? How can I help them? So that they are walking towards first receiving Christ and then walking with him. I need to know my children. Because again, this word is the comprehensive term. It's not just comprehensive in the sense, yeah, well, everybody. It's not like, uh, don't think of it as a, uh, I used to have to work on, uh, when I worked for Kraft, uh, the assembly line. And you know, oh, I hated Ketchup. That was, my, that was the one. Uh, do you understand that when you get a ketchup package and then it doesn't cut exactly right, that that ketchup squirts all over the place and you have to shut the entire system down to clean up ketchup? Why did I go off on this rabbit trail? <laughs> the point is this. This is what I really want you to remember. Don't treat your children like assembly line Christians or children. Like, you know, next, next. You've got to know them. And I think that's why he uses the word paedia here. Nurture, nurture. Know what they need. By the way, that word doesn't just mean teaching and training. It also means chastisement. That first word. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture. That also means chastisement. It's used in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 5. Some of you can probably f- finish the verse. My son, do not despise the chastening. That's the word right there. Discipline of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's the verb form. And, and he uses that, that verb or that noun in that passage five times. L- let me give you the last one. Verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Isn't chastening painful. I hope when the Lord chastens you, you recognize that it's the chastening of the Lord and not just, well, something bad has happened. No, God, God loves you so much. He brings pain into your life to get you to listen. And that's the same thing that happens with us as parents towards our children. I love you so much. I don't want you to go down the path of unrighteousness and I will even bring pain into your life so that you will listen and do what is right. But in Hebrews 12, the second part, it says, it's, it's uh, chasing and it's painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Oh, it's, it's the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It's not like we want, I'm not saying, that you know, like sadistic. Oh, Lord, give me pain. But I know this, that he loves me, and he at times brings pain into my life so that I will listen. And that's how we should look at it with child rearing. And especially for the father. Now think about first century. Total power. Paul saying, listen, no, no, you're raising your children because you love them. You don't discipline them because you hate them. By the way, you don't even discipline because you're punishing them. It's not really for punishment's sake, it's for future. See, punishment goes backwards. Chastisement goes forward, saying, I want you to be different in the future. There's a big difference. So God uses pain, and parents do need to also. The psalmist said this in Psalms 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Again, Pain makes obedience attractive. See, when I go off, you go off. What is it God does? He brings pain because he wants to make obedience attractive. I love the fact that in in Hebrews, that text, he says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Do you like the peaceable fruit of righteousness? Have you ever looked at your life and and started, and by the way, this is one reason to keep a journal. If you've never done it, periodically I do. Track what the Lord's doing. Because then you can look back and say, oh, I see what he was doing. And now I'm here, and I can look back there, and I can say, boy, what I didn't have there as far as spiritual fruit, I do have now. And sometimes it's the chastening rod of the Lord. So the first thing is nurture them. (coughs) I just love the word nurture. I mean, it's just, I know my child... I, I love my child, I want to help my child, I want to help direct my child, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes in the teaching and the training and the chastisement to get that child, by the way, I can't manipulate and I cannot control, but I can pray and I can guide and hopefully that child wants to follow. Some parents are always doing this. They're, they're trying to drive their children, you know, Really, it needs to go from that when they're younger to say, you know what, this is the direction I'm going. And what do they do? They're following. You're not driving them, they willingly follow because they say, you know what, he's following my God. I want to follow him too. You know, follow me as I follow Christ, Paul said. Be careful we don't drive our children, especially as they get older. So that's the first one, nurture them. And the second thing is this, admonish them. Now this is the word, well, we get nutheto, but the, the, it literally means this. This word literally means to place or to put in the mind. To place or to put in the mind. The idea is that you're building Conviction. This word has more to do with the mind because out of the heart, on the mind, the mouth speaks and the actions are and everything else comes out of the heart. And whereas I believe what he's doing in the first word is he's saying you teach and you train and you chastise and, and all those different things. Many of that is outward. Not always, but a lot of it. But now this word has more to do. Listen, but make sure in this whole process that you are making sure that those kids are getting it that you're building, and this is the key word, conviction. See, it's, it's something to be able to pass a theology test, and you can go to a school and, 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 and you know, know the Bible facts. Or you can go through homeschool, or you can go to public school, whatever. You can know the, the facts of, the, of Sunday school, ABM, whatever. It's another thing to have conviction. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll know if you have conviction when... The love that you have, and you're willing to do this. Lord, whatever your word says, I will do. See, that's conviction. Sometimes people say, yeah, I believe that and I believe that, but their life is over here. (laughs) You know, they're living different from what Scripture says. We need to live with conviction. Lord, what you say, I will do. Because if I love you, what? I will keep your commandments. And so this word admonition has to do with building the convictions. Building it so that they don't go drop off the, the, the planet after they graduate from high school or if they, after they graduate from college or whenever they move away from our greater control. No, no, they, they love Jesus. And they have the right attitudes, and they have the right principles. By the way, of the Lord, last part of this verse, of the Lord, according to his teaching, by his power that's found in the Spirit of God, and for his glory. That's what it means, of the Lord. Please, please, don't. I I find sometimes I, and I see others, it almost seems like we have too much pride in the fact that maybe our kids are walking with the Lord at the moment. Can we agree with this, that anything good that happens in our lives is because of God? Can we just say that? So this is for his glory. And if something's happening in your life or your child's life, it's because God's working. That's maybe one of my greatest fears. (laughs) Sometimes, man, Lord, please make it so that I don't do this superficially. So we want to nurture them. We want to admonish them. But then finally, you see this in your outline, you want to live authentically before them. You've got to model it. I wish I knew where this study was. A pastor out in Pontiac, Michigan, by the name of Brian Bill, uh, had this as a, uh, a thought, and he, he, he named a survey or a study, uh, and he says this, but he doesn't name the actual study. He says, quote, according to a 50-year study of Christian and non-Christian families, now again, <coughs> Christian and non-Christian, this is both sides, most young adults who follow Jesus Christ either come from a non-Christian home or from homes where they grew up in love with with Jesus because mom and dad were in love with Jesus. Most Christians who are on fire for God either came from an unsaved home or a home where Jesus Christ was glorified. Passion. He goes on. The parents' passion for Christ permeated their lives and passed through their their pores to their kids. Sadly, very few believers came from homes where there was a kind of indifferent, apathetic commitment to Christ. It is, a so, it is sobering to suggest that the chances are better for a child growing up in a non Christian home to become a sold out believer for Jesus Christ than for a child growing up in a spiritually lukewarm environment. Well, I, I read that and I was like, wow. By the way, it makes total sense. I grew up in an unsafe home, and I could see the clear distinction. What God was calling me to do and what my parents at the moment. Now, thankfully now, you know, my, my parents, I believe, are both saved and, you know, walking with the Lord. But at the time, they weren't. And I could see the distinction. Or someone that has come from a very solid biblical home, <coughs> hopefully they see the, you know, yeah, I, and I don't want just my father and mother's faith. It's the true faith. But you take a child who, live in, who lives in a hypocritical home, major damage. Because you as a parent are professing that God is Lord, <coughs> and yet not living it. And so there's going to be cynicism, there's going to be a criticalness, there's this, this hypocrisy will destroy the chances, unless God sovereignly works. Again, they'll just walk. So again, we got to be very careful. Excuse me, we got to be very, very careful that we are literally living out the faith. Again, dads, just in the middle of this message, are you modeling authentic faith to your kids and to your wife? Are you modeling it? Are you providing a nurturing atmosphere in your home in which your kids can grow up to love and serve Christ? I look in ways to teach and to tutor. You know them individually. Are you trying to bring them along? Or is it just kind of like, man, I can't wait till they're teenagers. This is so hard. Sometimes we get cynical and hard, you know. No, this is a great opportunity." Uh, opportunity. As one man said, one way to correct your children is to correct the example you're setting for them. I wonder how many problems in the home is really related to the parents. Or as Charles Bridges, that old Puritan writer, said, the child learns more by the eye than by the ear. They're watching, aren't they? In fact, after a message like this, you know, I get convicted. By the way, I'm encouraged because, again, I can see that I just have to take it one day at a time. But after a message like this, sometimes I've had to go back (coughs) and actually sit my kids down and say, okay, We've got to go in a new direction. I do, not you. And that's where confession goes in. That's the first thing, the father's responsibility. Now I want to go to the child's responsibility for the last few minutes. and Go over to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22. Very uh, familiar passage. Actually, verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old... He'll not depart from it. He will not depart from it. Sometimes I meet parents. Sometimes I'm, I've been like this. <clears throat> I want a guarantee in this parenting thing. And I found the verse to back it up. It's Proverbs twenty-two, six. See, many people think that this is a promise. By the way, it isn't. Just like if you just turn back a couple of verses, look at verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Is that always true? Take the first one. You mean if I'm humble and fearing the Lord, I'm going to be rich? No. Now, these are. this is not a promise. This is a principle. See, sometimes we think this way. I, I heard a guy speak on this one time. The idea is this. If I train up my child the right way... When they are old, they will follow the right way. Or to say it like he did, they think that Proverbs 22.6 is a promise. If I give them all the right influences, if I homeschool them and keep them away from that horrid public school system, and I give... and I, By the way, I'm not making a yay or nay for public or homeschooling. I, see, I have seen damage to both sides if I, now where am I, um, and I give them good positive influences and bring them up in a godly Christian family, then that child is going to grow up to love Jesus. Is that always true? See, I, I'm, I'm bringing this up because I think sometimes, just subtly, we go down the wrong path. We think something is being said and we are expecting a certain result. <clears throat> Can we say this? That if anything good happens in our lives is from God. You know? I think sometimes we forget that it's it's really God's work in our life and God's work in our child's life. So this is not a promise. By the way, in your in your notes I put warning, but I'd rather have you use the word general principle. You might want to scratch out warning. I was actually debating on Friday if I was going to change my view on this particular verse. And I've come back to say, No, no, it's just a general principle. There's no guarantees in parenting. That's what makes it so scary for people. But the word train means this, to dedicate. It was used four or five times of the temple. Like when they dedicated the temple. And the idea is that we need to dedicate our children for the purposes of God. Now, a greater amount of dedication is found within the parent than even the child. I'm dedicating myself to raise this child for the Lord. I'm just looking at myself, by the way, as a steward. I'm not the owner of the child. I've got to release. One of the things my my kids like to do at my my father's is we have, he has three ponds, big bass. One of the stipulations, though, it's catch and release. Catch the bass and then release it, right? Can't keep it, can't eat it. Why can't we eat it? No, catch and release. I I look at children like that, not catch, but we have them and then you got to release them. Right? you got to release them. I'm telling you, we got to think that way. These are not mine. I have them for a little bit. I'm raising them, not as children, but as adults, for that purpose. And then I release. They're fun to go back to see. And, uh, but anyways, dedicate. we got to dedicate ourselves. That word train was also, the verb form had also the idea of... Um, Getting them to desire. It was used for infants of putting date syrup or grape syrup on a newborn infant, and the uh, midwife would would uh, rub their gums, which would get the sucking action going, uh, which meant you know that and then put them on the mother's breast. Okay, get them. In other words, desiring to suck. And really, I mean, that's a really neat picture of, of parenting. Don't we want to get them desiring the things of God? And we present, present the, uh, the teaching and the example, and they see us, and what they should be is like, man, I, 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 want, I want daddy's God. I, I want the God that daddy is serving and mommy is serving. <coughs> so that's the idea of the word train, it means both dedicate and to get them to have a thirst for the spiritual things. Again, by the way, I, I, I know it's gone around and sometimes people say, according to the child's bent. Actually, that's not. It, because at the moment that the child is a child, you don't know they're bent. <clears throat> In fact, I think a lot of children when they're 18, 20 years old don't know they're bent. I mean, adults that are 35 years old, they still haven't figured out their bent in life. <laughs> they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Now, it just means, I think, uh, overall, we, we see our children and say, we need to train them for God. Or as the late uh, J. Vernon McGee used to say, the way the child should go is the way God wants him to go. And we're just laying down foundation for that person's life so that as the Lord directs them, they have a good foundation. When they grow up, when they grow old, it is be, it is to be hoped that they will not depart from the way. Sometimes, though, they do. Sometimes they do. But in this whole thing, let's remember this one ultimate point. <laughs> if there's anything good that happens in my kid's life, is it God that's doing it? Absolutely. If there's anything good happening in my life, it's God doing it. So, I've got to be praying. I've got to be asking him. I've got to be asking for direction. I've got to be living the right life. I've got to be nurturing and admonishing them. But but let's, let's take one final question. And I know I'm kind of jumping around. There's just been a lot of things in my heart when it comes to this parenting thing. Because like I said, sometimes I feel like I'm on a minefield. I used to feel perfectionistic, like this is so hard. I'm supposed to do what, I'm supposed to serve them, but Too high of expectation? Am I child-centered? Am I too, you know, ornery at times? And I want to step back and say, wait a second, is this doable? Yes, it is doable. But someone might say this, I want a guarantee. What if you came into my office and you're a little depressed and I ask you this question, what if you were the perfect parent in your parenting? I mean, you did... Everything 100% exactly the way that you were supposed to. You never made any bad decisions at all. You did everything absolutely perfect. Would your child grow up to love and serve Jesus? <laughs> What's the answer? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah and then Ezekiel and we're done. Isaiah 1. This is the perfect parent. This is, and I want to re- reiterate that this is the perfect parent. This is God speaking of Israel. Verse 2, Isaiah 1:2 Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. What has He spoken? I have nourished and brought up, by the way, get the words: nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. That's the perfect parent. He didn't do anything wrong. Yet his children, Israel, rebelled. By the way, let me stop here. I am not saying this, that if you're a good parent, generally, yes, your children follow the Lord. I mean, you you do what Ephesians 6 says and Colossians 3 And generally, yes, the children grab a hold of the parents' faith, and yes, I want to, and God works, and they get saved, and they walk with Jesus. But we've got to get this out of our mind that it's an absolute guarantee, because if you think that, and your child walks away for even a time, (coughs) you know what you're going to do? This doesn't work. And at that very moment, your child is looking at you to say, is your faith going to stand up when I don't do what you want me to do? So we have to be solid and, wait a second, if there's something good happening, it's God. Now again, I'm not telling you to be a pathetic parent, like it doesn't matter. But just know that if something has happened in your life, rather than giving yourself the glory, (laughs) give it to the Lord. Because he's worked. See, what does the Bible teach? And final passage, Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. This is the last spot of what I want to talk on. By the way, I got a little bit of this. This piece from a man named John Street. He's the head counselor, the doctor that, uh, at the master's college. And he was talking, I thought, boy, this is parenting stuff, even though it wasn't a parenting uh, seminar. But what does the Bible teach? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches that Proverbs twenty-two-six is a, a general principle. But the other thing the Bible teaches is that each generation makes its own choices. Each generation. And we need to teach our kids this, because sometimes if they're not taught this, what ends up happening is this. They blame you. You know, I turned out the way I did by, because of my environment, because of my parents, because of my father, because of my mother, because of my church. You know, blame shifting? No, no. Each generation makes its own choices and each generation will then uh, have to uh, endure its own consequences. Look at verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb? Now, this is a proverb that God hates. This is a proverb, not found in Proverbs, but just as a proverb that was going around Israel concerning the land of Israel. And look at the proverb. This is what it says. Verse 2, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Verse 3, as I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Why? Because he hates it. By the way, he hates it because it implies that he himself is God, as God is unjust. That's why he hates it. What do you mean? What what is the proverb? Well, the fathers have eaten uh, sour grapes. In other words, they've sinned. They've sinned, sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. The father did the action, but the children had to endure the consequence. <clears throat> <clears throat> Have you ever eaten sour grapes before? And he says, I hate that. By the way, I'm not saying that if you are in a home where the father has made a lot of bad choices, that there's not residual But to say that you have to endure the consequences because of the actual sin is wrong. (coughs) I mean, that's where you get this. It's wrong teaching generational curses. You know, over in Exodus 20 when it says, uh, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. He is not saying that the very sins of the fathers are then going to be passed on and have to be passed on to the third and fourth generation. What he is saying is that if the present generation learns the sins of the previous generations, in other words, their influences, they cannot blame the original generation that started the sin. It is true. Well, it's true that This is what's true. I am just like my dad in many ways. I even sometimes walk like him. My wife will say, wow, you've got to change that. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that I have to. And so... Every generation makes its own choices. He says, I hate the fact that you think because the, the fathers ate the sour grapes that the children's teeth had to be set on edge. No, no. Each, and I'm going to show in a moment, each generation makes its own choices and each generation then endures its own consequences. As one man said, an ungodly, hypocritical, or indifferent dad is not only a constant and full-time negative role model, his influence also breeds cynicism, unbelief, discouragement, resentment, and a whole new generation of hypocrisy in his children. Thus, the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the children to the third and fourth, but it's because they keep learning it. I mean, yes, we definitely teach. There's no question about that. But the actual sins do not carry over automatically. It's because the next generation has learned it. That's why we need to be spiritually strong. That's why we need to be godly. That's why, at least in my life, I have seen things change. I mean, I can look (coughs) and see certain sins that were were, were consistently learned, generation, 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 that have stopped at my generation. I hope you see that too if you come from an unsafe family. That you're different? Deuteronomy 24 says this, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor their children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Same concept. Each generation makes its own choices and is responsible. Well, let's let's look at some case studies. What do you mean case studies? He gives actually five case studies in Ezekiel chapter 18. Look at verse uh, verse 5. By the way, the key to the whole thing is actually the end of verse 4. The soul that sins will die. Each is responsible for its own uh, choices and will suffer the consequences. The soul that sins shall die. And now he gives you some case studies. Look at case study number one. If a righteous man... (coughs) Excuse me, I've had a cold this week. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, and and he names a bunch of things in verses 6 through 9, what? What's the end? Verse 9. He shall surely live and declares the Lord. Righteous? You'll live. There'll be blessing. You walk with God, there'll be blessing. The man that does right lives. Look at number two, though. A good parent has an unrighteous son. Verse 10. If the father's If he fathers a son, who's the he? Well, the righteous guy. The righteous man fathers a son, but look at this son. This son, he's a righteous man, but he's a violent and a shedder of blood. See, this this is a good parent, but has an unrighteous son. Wait, that's not supposed to happen. (laughs) No, no, good parents have good kids. Not according to here. Sometimes you have one who's unrighteous. And he does all the wrong things. Look at verse 13. He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now again, I'm not not trying to draw any conclusions about the severity of the consequence. I'm only saying that, what's the example? Good parent, bad son. Look at case number three. Now he gives us some hope. This is third generation. In other words, this is saying this. You don't have to be like your parent. By the way, some of you live in the shadow of your parent. And it's unfortunate because you're not getting victory because you keep going back to what your parents did. And God says, you know what? It's your choice, not his. Verse 14, Now, suppose this man, (coughs) what man? The unrighteous one, father's a son, who sees, now we know it's the unrighteous one, because all the sins that his father has done. See, he's, he's referring to uh, the guy in verses 10 through 13. He, the unrighteous son, fathers, and now we're at the grandchildren level from the first. But he sees his father and he says, you know what? Uh, he doesn't do likewise. That's hope. Verse 15, he does not do all the things in verse 15, 16, and 17. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. By the way, don't you? Many of you are in that category right there. You were you grew up in an unsaved home. You watched ungodliness. God rescued you, and you said, "I'm not going in that path." And what, what does God say? Each man makes his own choices. I'm going to go in a different direction. God rescued you from wickedness. How about the case number four? When the wicked man turns from his wickedness. Here's a guy that starts out wicked, but. Look at what he does. He turns away, verse 21, from his sin. (coughs) What does he say? He's going to forget. He is not committed, shall shall, shall be remembered against him, shall not be remembered against him. None of these transgressions. Have I any pleasure in the death of a wicked? You can even go down the road for a time being wicked. God says, if you turn and repent, what do I do? Forgive. Praise God. Again, parents have a great influence, but but again, sometimes, you know, well, no, what do I want to say? God is a God of hope. <laughs> no matter where you find yourself right now, you can change. And then case number five starts in verse 24. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness, well, what's going to happen? Well, that's the second part of verse None of the the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them he shall die. I think he adds the last verse because you know, in scripture there are many times that the person failed later in life. Think about David. He didn't fail until the end of his life. That was the end of his life with Bathsheba. After many, many victories. But again, again, The righteous falls even after a long life of righteousness. He's going to have to be, he has to hold to the consequences of his sin. So what's the whole point? Each generation, each person, each child is responsible for their decisions. They can't say, well, it's just my parents. They can't blame someone. And and again, I'm going to go on the other side and say to us as parents this, that if we are raising children that are honoring to the Lord if we've had input in that, just see us, just see ourselves as a steward, right? Lord, if there's anything good in me or if there's any good thing good in my children, it's because you've worked and I just thank you for that. Because I think sometimes parents get haughty. We, we look at our children and sure we're proud. Is that correct? But sometimes I think we give ourselves too much credit. It's really God. It's God that's working. See, It's not that I want to control my children and I certainly cannot control their outcome. I can influence our kids. We can influence our kids, but we cannot determine their final direction. It's only between them and God and we have to stay as a servant. Let me just close. Again, I hope I haven't piled on. I know we've covered a lot. I hope you're not discouraged. Do we all agree that there's really only one perfect parent? That's God himself. We've all made mistakes. Thankfully, that we can go to the Lord, we can see th- different areas, and we can grow in them. That's, that should be encouraging. Again, we can all become better dads, but the point is this. Be, not a better dad, that's not the issue. Let's become more godly, because that's the foundation that a better dad is standing on, right? We need to be a godly man. Because our kids are watching us more than they're hearing us. And if we're walking the path in fellowship with the Lord, they're watching that. And that, by the way, takes a lot of pressure off of me personally. Oh, you mean I don't have to do devotions every night and try to get them to understand all these things because before they leave, they have to know it. Yep, you don't have to do all that. I'm not saying not to have devotions. You should pray with your children. But you know what? They're watching and they're learning more by what you're doing. They're, they're learning more by who you are than what you say. And that is actually a freeing thing, at least for myself. i just got to be godly. I just have to, me, personally walk with Jesus. And then number three, and this is, the, this is one that really hit me. I'm not fathering alone. No, God wants to work through me, and that means that I need to trust him, and I need to pray more. See, because I can't be around my kids. When they were little, I loved it. Because I had, and I could just kind of go like this. And I I remember going into their rooms many times, and it just gave me such a great feeling. They were just sleeping. And I, you know, everything was fine, and I could turn off the light, and I knew everything was okay. Now they're moving away. But I can still pray for them. And if they're believers you know what? He's the good shepherd. I was just an insignificant, sinful, uh, not insignificant. It was significant, but I'm just a sinful shepherd, right? At best, right? I'm a sinner. But he's the perfect shepherd, and he's watching over his sheep pray. If you're not praying for your kids regularly, pray. I'd even say this, repent, dads. They're your priorities, even after they leave the home, Right? Pray, shepherd them through your prayers. If nothing else, right? So again, I encourage you, dads, step up, be encouraged, go forward, walk with Jesus. They see more than they're hearing, and we should take uh, encouragement by that. Let's stand as we close. I read a story about a, a, a father, and he came home from work, and he was tired, and he was irritated, and he was what we would say, dog tired. And he had a little five-year-old son that came up to him, waiting for him to come home. And he said, Daddy, may I ask you a question? And the father said, well, yeah, sure. He said, well, how much money do you make an hour, Daddy? And the dad, again, was already dog-tired, and he was irritated. He was like, you know, what? It's none of your business. And he kept pushing him, pushing him. You know, how much do you? And he finally gave him the answer. He said, I make about 20 bucks an hour. The dad just wanted to... Um, you know, go relax and, and the, the, the son asked him, well, could I have ten dollars? And that really irritated the guy. You know, I don't have time for this. Will you just, just go to your room? Well, the boy quietly ran to his room. And, you know, the father sitting there, you know, you've probably been there at times when they've irritated you. And finally he went up to his son's room, you know, are you asleep? And, no, Daddy, I'm awake, replied the boy. I've been thinking maybe I was too hard on you earlier. It's been a long day and I, and I took it out on you. Here's the ten bucks that you asked for. And the little boy sat straight up, beaming. Oh, thank you, Daddy, explained. And then reaching under his pillow, he pulled out a wad of crumpled bills, which actually got the guy more irritated. He was really ticked off and he demanded to know What was going on? Why did you want more money if you already had some? And this is what the boy replied: "Because I didn't have enough, but I, but now I do, Daddy. I have twenty dollars now, and I'd like to buy an hour of your time. If we're going to have influence with them, we got to be around them, right? Let's pray." Father, again, we thank you for the great privilege that many of us have as being a parent, and many of us as men have as being a father. And Father, we thank you for your example for us. We thank you that no matter what situation we have come from, that you are um, teaching us how to be a godly father. And we ask that you would give us insight but as we have just been reminded that you would make it a priority in our hearts to give our kids time. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for uh, just the blessing of children, of grandchildren. And yet I know that some, even on this day, would have a hard time being Father's Day, whether it's because they've never had children or maybe their father wasn't an example of godliness. And we ask for your grace and mercy in our lives so that we might be joyful, we might be peaceful, we might, we might be able to respond in a godly way no matter what type of family we have come from or what type of family we find ourselves in. Father, again, we want to glorify you. And we ask that you would give us the grace and the mercy and the strength to do that. Lord, Help us to, again seek to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of you so that we might glorify you and that they might. In Jesus' name, amen.